Good evening. Uh, it's good to welcome you uh, to our evening service this week. Uh, let me begin uh, by uh, praying. So let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we thank you so much that we're able to meet together as your people tonight. We thank you that we can uh, come freely and uh, hear your word proclaimed. We can uh, worship you who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. We thank you that we can come around the Lord's table and we can remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And at this time, where there's so many restrictions in our lives, we thank you again for these wonderful privileges and pray that we would not take them for granted, but that tonight they would be more real to us. And we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we... Um, have our first song. We're going to stand together and read um, what hopefully is a familiar passage of scripture uh, from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the words will appear on the, the screen. Uh, these are the Beatitudes. These are the kind of um, the, the blessings uh, and behaviors of people of, of being in God's kingdom. Uh, and they're perfectly exemplified by our Savior Jesus. So let's stand uh, together, and we'll read these as a congregation before we sing our first song. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Please uh, take your seats. Uh, as we've read those, we must remember that Jesus fulfilled these things perfectly when he came from heaven to earth. And our first song uh, tells us that he is the glorious Christ. i 
If you have your Bibles with you, uh, would you turn in them to Matthew chapter 20? And this evening uh, in Matthew chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 17 uh, down to verse 28. Now, some of you uh, may have been involved in debates about who in a certain uh, sport, especially, or it could be any field of life, is the GOAT. So for those of you that don't know, it's up there on the screen, so you do now, but GOAT stands for greatest of all time. Now, years ago, there was a uh, 100-meter world record holder Uh, Morris Green, Uh, he was running around late 90s, early 2000s, and he had a a goat tattooed on his arm uh, to tell the whole world that he was uh, the greatest sprinter of all time. However, his record, the world record, uh, stood for three years, and since that world record, there are about four people uh, who have run faster than Maurice Green has run. Now, in any uh, sphere of life, if you're going to claim to be the greatest of all time, it is only ever going to be uh, until someone else becomes greater. But the idea of what the greatest of all time is in our world is usually who is the fastest, who is the strongest, who is the richest, and on and on it goes. And that is the ambition of so many people in our world. But in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus that we've been looking at in Matthew's gospel, we see a very different view of what real greatness is. Now, we've seen this kind of teaching that we're about to read in Matthew chapter 20 before in Matthew's gospel. So in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 4, Uh, Jesus says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So at that point, he picked up uh, a child, and that child was an example of greatness in God's kingdom. Now, as I've said before, in those days, children were not valued. Uh, They were seen as the very opposite of greatness because they were weak and uh, dependent. And we've seen this kind of lowliness, this humility in the behavior of Jesus all through Matthew's gospel. Uh, Nobody has ever gone lower than Jesus. So he left the glories of heaven. And in the beginning of Matthew, we read how he is the Messiah, the son of David, the king. And he was born into obscurity. As we, we read Matthew chapter 1 this morning, uh, in, his, his father was Joseph, his mother was Mary, born in obscurity, in scandalous circumstances, because Mary was pregnant with Jesus before she was married to Joseph. They had to flee Egypt to escape King Herod. Uh, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a town of, of no note whatsoever. He was poor, having no place to lay his head. And oftentimes, when we see Jesus performing miracles in Matthew's gospel and in all the gospels, 
But we hear him say to the recipient of the miracle, don't tell anyone about this. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. Uh, Jesus was not um, the greatest showman. Jesus was the greatest servant. And it is in Jesus' words that we're going to hear tonight and that we've heard before and in the works that we see in him, true greatness. In Jesus, we see true greatness. And the true greatness we see here is is the opposite of the false and self-aggrandizing greatness of the world. You shouldn't ever see a follower of Jesus with a goat tattooed on their arm, unless you know, they got it before they were a Christian. Um, you can't get rid of it. But if you're a Christian, you don't go to the tattoo place and say, can you put a goat on my arm because I'm the greatest of all time? You just don't do that. The opposite of that is what Jesus talks about here. So let's see uh, how that bears out in Matthew 20 from verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. So we're going to see in this passage true greatness. And the first uh, way we see that is greatness in sacrifice. So in verse 17, uh, we, we read there that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. It was the time of the Passover feast. And so lots of people, lots of crowds were also going up to Jerusalem with Jesus. Uh, And we read about that in this passage. But for Jesus, he wasn't only going to celebrate the Passover. He was going up to Jerusalem because he knew that he was going to die there. And his 12 disciples, well, they've been following him for some time. And in chapter 16 of Matthew, they had declared 
that they knew that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the promised king who is going to reign over his people. And so Jesus pours them aside before they get to Jerusalem and he reminds them of what is going to happen to their Messiah. They know who he is, they know he's the Messiah, but they need reminding again, this is the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. And this is the fourth time, actually, that Jesus has told the disciples about his death. Uh, here are, are the, the previous three. So in chapter 16, uh, Jesus said, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third, and on the third day be raised to life. Then in uh, Matthew chapter 17, uh, talking about John the Baptist, who is the Elijah referred to here, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. So John the Baptist had been uh, put in prison because he was faithful to God and to proclaiming God's word, and John the Baptist had been killed. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then in Matthew chapter 17, uh, later on in that chapter, it says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this isn't new teaching for the disciples. They'd heard over and over what Jesus is going to do, what's going to happen to him. But here, notice how the detail is much more specific. So first of all, he calls himself the Son of Man, uh, which is Jesus' own way of referring to himself as the Messiah. Uh, only uh, Only Jesus really uses this name about himself, and it is a name that comes from the book of Daniel, where a glorious king, who is like a son of man, that's what Daniel says, comes. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He's, he is this glorious king, but this king is going to be delivered over, he says, to the religious leaders who are going to condemn him to death. Now, the religious leaders were a council called the Sanhedrin, but they only had limited power. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, were not allowed to put anyone to death. And so, if they wanted to do that, they had to get the Romans to do it for them. And that's what Jesus means here when it says they will condemn him and hand him over to the Gentiles. Because it's the Romans who would execute the sentence on Jesus. This is why uh, Jesus says he's going to be handed over to them and they'll mock him, they'll flog him, and they'll crucify him. So Jesus goes into detail here about what is going to happen when he goes up to Jerusalem, when they get there. And yet, what's interesting is that he still goes. Now, Passover was the the big Jewish festival. Now imagine for us, Christmas is coming, and you know if you go uh, to this particular person's house, it's going to be an t- absolute disaster. And so you might think, I'll give Christmas a miss this year, or at least I'll celebrate it somewhere else. But Jesus here goes up 
anyway, knowing full well what is going to happen to him when he arrives. Almost anybody else would have avoided Jerusalem if they knew what was going to happen. But Jesus has come, Matthew tells us in chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. The sacrifice he is going to make is the only way that this salvation can come. And so he goes to Jerusalem. But there is a note there at the end of verse 19. Jesus knew also he would be raised to life. Sin and death will be defeated because the greatest sacrifice will end in the greatest victory. And so Jesus knew as he walked to Jerusalem, yes, there will be great pain and great suffering, but he knew it would be worth it to save his people from their sins. He would be raised. Now as Christians, uh, Jesus has told us to take up our cross and follow him. There is great cost, there is sacrifice involved in being a follower of Jesus. Now, of course, it, it pales when it's compared to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Of course it does. But nevertheless, there is sacrifice if we're going to follow Jesus. But there is also life. God will vindicate us because the sacrifices we make for Christ are always worth it. There is always the resurrection. And that day is coming, isn't it, when Jesus comes again and will be raised to a new life for all eternity. So in Jesus' kingdom, there is greatness in sacrifice. But linked to this, in verses 20 to 28, we see there is greatness in serving. So we've seen Jesus talk about the greatness of being a servant before. And Jesus has just told us of the greatest act of sacrificial service in the history of the world as he talks about the cross. But it appears that his disciples are still blinded by their own egos from seeing what true greatness is. So Jesus has told them, I'm going to make this sacrifice for you. And the disciples are thinking about the equivalent of getting a goat tattooed on their arm. We want to be the greatest of all time. And we see this in verse 20 as, as the mother of James and John uh, come to Jesus wanting a favor. And Jesus says in verse 21, what is it you want? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So this woman, this mother, is ambitious for her children. And there is no doubt in my mind that James and John are in on this too. It's like a family, a family thing. We want to be the family that are at the top of this kingdom. The right and the left side of a king means that they are in close proximity to the king and so they get to share in his power and in his privileges and authority. It is a high honor indeed and, and they want to be there. Now, why is it that she asks for this now, at this point? Well, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem 
which is the city of the king, where the the king of Israel uh, sat. Uh, Jesus calls himself the son of man, which is a reference to this glorious king in Daniel. Uh, In chapter 19 and verse 28, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we read of of thrones uh, for the 12 disciples. Uh, And maybe she has some understanding of the resurrection, that he's going to be raised to life. So before we jump to condemn her, it's worth noting that she does have faith here. She has the right kind of idea of who Jesus is in terms of his person. She gets who he is. She knows this is the king who is going to be on a throne in his kingdom and rule. She gets who he is, but she totally misses the point of the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom that Jesus has been teaching about. And there's, there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? That we can have all of our doctrine lined up so that we can articulate with our mouths what we believe, but miss the point entirely when it comes to applying that doctrine in our lives. So we might be able to explain really well the doctrine of the Trinity. And we might have nailed down uh, how Jesus is going to return. And we think we know all of that. But when the Christian life becomes all about all this stuff I know, but I don't know how to love my family or to serve in the church or any number of things that is that in how we practice the Christian faith, the head knowledge just becomes just that, just knowledge. And actually, just like here, the Christian life then becomes all about me, all about what I can know and get out of it and not about serving other people. And when we become like that, we miss the point entirely. But not only do they miss the point, the mother and sons, Jesus in verse 22 says they don't even understand what they are asking. If they are going to reign with Jesus, which is what they're asking to do, Jesus says, then you're going to have to suffer with me as well. So he asks them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Well, the word cup which we read here, is often used in the Bible as a symbol of experiencing something. So uh, in in the Old Testament especially, we read about uh, the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation, and frequently the cup of God's wrath that people are given to drink. So in the Old Testament, when someone uh, came under the wrath of God, often it was said that they would drink the cup of God's wrath. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do himself on the cross. He's going to experience the wrath of God in full and drink that cup. And we'll read later on in the garden, that's why um, he talks about the cup uh, being passed on. the, The cup of God's wrath, it's an awful thing. But here he's talking about a cup that refers to suffering. Because the disciples who trust in Jesus 
are not going to drink God's wrath because Jesus is going to drink God's wrath, but they are going to suffer. Jesus suffered, his followers will suffer, is what he's saying. And Jesus asked them, are you prepared to suffer just like I'm going to suffer? Well, they arrogantly reply in, uh, at the end of verse 22, we can. Of course we can. Well, we're going to see the folly of their um, words when Jesus is arrested. We'll see when he's arrested, all of these disciples who say, yeah, we can follow you, Jesus, they all run away in the opposite direction. But there will come a time when they will suffer for Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. We know that James, one of these brothers, he was martyred for believing in Jesus. We read about that in the book of Acts. And John, the other brother, in the book of Revelation, we see that he was exiled on the island of Patmos. So they did indeed drink from that cup. But at this point, they were only interested in their own glory, their own position. And Jesus says those things are not their concern. The Father is in control of who sits where. It's out of our control, and it shouldn't really be something that we concern ourselves with whatsoever. When we're thinking about where, how high can I get in God's kingdom, we're missing the point of God's kingdom entirely. The point Jesus is making here is this. You are looking for glory in my kingdom, but my kingdom is one of sacrifice and service. That is what the king of the kingdom is like. That is what his followers ought to be like too. Jesus has not come to allocate positions around his throne. He has come to make disciples who walk in his footsteps. But in verse 24, we read that the, the ten other disciples were indignant with James and John. Probably not because they thought, oh, they've got such a bad attitude. They were mad because they didn't get there first. And the reason I say this is because in verse 25, Jesus doesn't call James and John and their mother aside. He calls all of them aside to teach them about what true greatness is in his kingdom. So he says to them how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The phrase here, lord it over, isn't speaking necessarily about bad leadership, but it's talking about the kind of structure that the world's leadership is. In the kingdoms of the world, rulers uh, are characterized by power and position and glory. The aim is to get to the top of the greasy pole, isn't it? That's the, the whole point of all kind of politics in our world. We see it all over the place. The aim is to get to the top. And in the Roman era, a leader was especially defined by his prowess in battle, the strongest. And that's what happens today in our world, isn't it? Who gets to the top? Well, really, it is the rich, those with powerful families, those who went to the best schools, all those kind of things, isn't it? It's an interesting study uh, to look at 
uh, the, you know, where different leaders in the world, what their backgrounds are, you'll find very few who did not get there because of some kind of, of riches or a school they went to or whatever it is. In fact, if you look at the school playground when you're in school, who is the most popular? Isn't it normally the, the high achiever uh, in sport or whoever's the funniest or the one with the most followers on Instagram? Aren't they the ones who are the most popular? But Jesus says in verse 26, not so with you. Greatness is not uh, in God's kingdom climbing up a greasy pole, it's sliding down a pole, isn't it? So he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. In the Roman world especially, you couldn't get lower than a servant or a slave. This is not greatness in their eyes. This is humiliation. Servants and slaves had lives that were dedicated to serving others in humble obscurity. Interestingly, notice how Jesus' words say this in such a way that make the servant and the slave greater than the master that they're serving. So he says, Whoever wants to be great must be your slave. So if you've got a slave, Jesus is saying your slave is greater than you are by nature of them being a slave, that position. It's highlighting the point that greatness is in serving others, not in building ourselves up. As Christians, we should be seeking humble obscurity in service, not elevation. And of course, the greatest example of this is, of course, the king of the kingdom, Jesus. We are to be just as the Son of Man. Notice in verse 28, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice the way here Jesus speaks of his title, Son of Man, this glorious king, and his work to serve. You see how they're side by side? This great king, who is the greatest of all time, he is God with us. In fact, he's, he's the greatest above time. He's beyond time. He has that title, but he comes to serve. And his service is his sacrifice. He gives his life. That is, he dies as a ransom for many. A ransom has its origin in warfare. Uh, there were, a, a prisoner of war would get taken and a price was set on their head that had to be paid for that prisoner to be freed from their captor. Now we, as, a, as humanity, are slaves to sin. We are prisoners, unable to get out. And Jesus frees us by paying the price for our sins by dying in our place. There are echoes here of Isaiah 53, where the Messiah that is described as a suffering servant who comes to pay for the sins of his people. So if an example is verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He has his portion among the great because he poured out his life. Because he bore the sins of many. Jesus' greatness was shown in the sacrifice that he made. And he does that for many. The many are those many people who put their trust in him. Trusting that the sacrifice he made pays for my sin. The sacrifice that he made is for all those who put their trust in him. This kind of greatness is the opposite, isn't it, of uh, the jockeying for position that James, John, and their mother were involved in. And it's a good check for us as well, isn't it? It's worth asking, what, what is your ambition in your life? Isn't so much of our ambition to be seen as great by the world standards, to want to be applauded And so we look for ways that we can get everyone to say how wonderful we are. Isn't so much of our ambition in church to want people to think we are holy rather than actually in humble obscurity getting on with being holy? Isn't our desire so often the opposite of the humble obscurity that Jesus speaks of here? Our ambition should want to be to serve our God by serving others. Even and especially in ways that are not even seen. Just like the slave and the servant. I also think there is, maybe it's a bit of an aside, but I think there is a word here for parents as well. The mother of James and John here was, was very ambitious for her children. And sometimes... As parents, our ambition for our children can be for them to do really well so that we can be seen as really great parents. There's a real danger there. We can want our children to fulfill the dreams that we had but could never fulfill ourselves. Our biggest ambition for our children should be, as Christians, for them also to be humble servants in God's kingdom, wherever that takes them. But there's so much application in this passage about being a servant for all of us, isn't there? In our homes, are you always looking for ways uh, that you can be served in your home? Or... Do you rather look for ways that you can help your spouse or your parents, serving them? Among family that are not in the church, outside the home, are you servants to them? We can serve our parents, even if we can't visit them in their house at the moment, just by giving them a ring, having time to speak to them. In your school, young people, 
It's so easy in school to want to be the greatest in the eyes of your friends. But Jesus tells us to look out for ways we can be a good servant of others rather than trying to be popular. It's easy, actually, to be seen as great in other people's eyes. You can just play the clown or whatever it is. But in God's eyes, true greatness is being a servant. What about in the workplace? Are you just trying to get one over your colleagues? Show them how great you are and how you're better than they are? Rather, show them Jesus with an attitude of service. What about in the church? Do you come to church just so that you can be served? I think at the moment, the way that we do church, um, by necessity, um, perhaps makes us more liable to be spectators rather than participants, doesn't it? But we need to serve in the church. And there are lots of ways that we can do that. Uh, Not just on a Sunday, but all through the week, we can be speaking to one another, serving one another in all sorts of different ways. Don't just spectate at church and be served, but be a servant. And the same with our neighbors, wherever we live. Can you practically serve them in some way, showing them Christ through your love? So as we've read these words, it's worth taking some time, and we'll do that uh, as we come around the Lord's table, to just think about your ambitions in your life. Are you wanting to be the greatest of all time? Or are you wanting to be a servant, which is great in God's eyes? And what better illustration of what we've been talking about is there than the Lord's table, where we see how Jesus was the greatest servant of all, as he died for our sins. Well, before we come to the Lord's table, our song uh, in response So what we've heard reminds us of how Jesus is our servant king.
Thank you.